Welcome to the Mocha Talks podcast. This podcast is intended for UNLV staff, students, alumni, and faculty to learn about current issues within our UNLV community and our society from a student-based perspective. Our mission here is to inform and create discussion about racial disparities, social inequality, toxic masculinity, and other relatable social justice issues to unpack at least one individual in the community by educating or creating the drive for change. Today we have President Whitfield as our guest and we have the representatives from the Men of Color Alliance and Women of Color Coalition. We have President Josue, Vice President Abe, President Darian, and, Pre and Vice President Ava. I'm now going to pass it off to Josue for the introductions. Hello everyone, my name is Josue Rosales. I'm a fourth year student. I go by he, he him, his pronouns and I'm really excited to get started. Hello everyone, my name is Abraham Lugo. You can just call me Abe. My pronouns are also he, him, his. I'm the vice president of the Men of Color Alliance um, and I'm a third year political science major with a minor in Brookings Public Policy. Um, and I'm just very excited to have our president as our guest here today and talk about very important subjects. So thank you for being here. Hey y'all, my name is Darian Fluker and I use she, her, her pronouns. I currently have the amazing opportunity of serving as the Women of Color Coalition president. Um, and I'm actually a third year student, double majoring in both theater and hospitality. And like everyone else has already said, I'm very excited to get started and have our esteemed president, uh, President Whitfield here with us today. So thank you so much for being here. Hello, and finally, I'm Ava Corino. I use she, they pronouns. I'm a triple major here at UNLV for History, Asian American Studies, and Film. I'm the Vice President of World Working alongside Darian, and I'm very honored to be a part of this opportunity and to be speaking with you today. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, and now I want to introduce our wonderful guest that we have today, the president of the University of, no of Nevada, Las Vegas, President Whitfield. Uh, thank you very much for the, uh, the intro. I am so impressed with double, triple majors. I mean, I guess, you know, if there's a major out there, you know, you guys just collect them. That is fantastic. Um, so I am your uh, 11th president of uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I come here most directly from uh, Detroit, Michigan, where I served as provost and senior vice president for academic affairs at Wayne State University. Previous to that, I was at Duke University, where I was the vice provost for academic affairs. All right. Awesome, yeah. Thank you. Like, we can't thank you enough for actually joining us, but let's start off with just some basic questions. We want to learn a little bit about our wonderful president. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? What did you, what did you study? What did you graduate out, out of? Okay, and I'm gonna ask you all to make sure that you speak real close to the microphone because I don't, I, I'm on my laptop and so it may not have the best of, of speaker quality and I wanna make sure I answer your questions. So in terms of my background, I just gave you a little bit of it. Um, my background in terms of uh, my training is as a developmental psychologist, I study particularly aging, uh, aging among African-Americans and uh, do work with, uh, work on families, um, using families as a method to study cognition, individual differences in health and aging. Um, been doing that for a long time, have collaborators all over the world. Um, 
And interestingly enough, not that they study African-Americans, but we study difference. We study difference sometimes between different groups. Like uh, I just finished uh, working on a, an email to some colleagues that work with uh, twin studies that are in Finland and Sweden and Denmark and Australia. And my study, one of my studies that I've done uh, is called the Carolina African-American Twin Study of Aging. And it's the only study of adult African-American twins, uh, in-person study of adult African-American twins. And so it ends up being a, a interesting uh, resource that people like to put together with others so that they can get a diverse sample as they study different things relative to adult development and aging. Wow, okay. That's, wow. <laughs> um, why did you feel that UNLV was your next step? You know, that's so interesting. I, I did have an earlier conversation with the business school and we were talking about this very issue and it's about fit. Um, I think that this was just such an interesting moment in time, you know, where you all were picking a president in the middle of a pandemic and trying to think about um, the future when we're so focused on what the present is. Um, but I think that they looked and saw that uh, in terms of uh, my background, um, I'm, I'm very focused on student success. Uh, that was something that uh, I actually left Duke for to go to Wayne State. Um, as you can imagine at Duke, I think the graduation rate was like 95% or something like that. It was just ridiculous. At Wayne State, when I joined them, it was about 39%. And through the work of uh, an incredible team that was there, uh, I was able to help uh, contribute to our university uh, going past 50%, which was, I don't know, a 33% increase, something like that. It was a pretty significant increase. Um, so those are the kinds of things that I'm passionate about. And I think that was an interest here. I think the diversity of the student body is significantly important here. And it's not just because of numbers. It's because diversity actually is the perfect training ground for anybody in any discipline doing anything. Of that, when you can understand people from a different perspective, a different way of life, a different way of thinking, it doesn't matter what the topic that you're studying is. You have to solve problems. You have to address things. And that kind of understanding different perspectives allows you to solve problems better allows you to find out what other people know and understand what they're doing better. It's just overall, it, it produces a very uh, superior educational opportunity. And so seeing the diversity here was absolutely fantastic. Um, and then lastly, I'd say that uh, UNLV is a semi underappreciated university. Um, and I knew that kind of from the beginning. I knew about UNLV primarily through the hospitality program, um, but <laughs> When you, when you start to find out and meet the faculty and meet the students here, um, people don't know how great this university really is. And I think through the process, I learned that. And um, I think we just ended up being a very good fit for those different reasons. Okay, so going off of diversity, um, throughout your own personal experience, have you ever seen any organizations sort of like MOCA and WOKE, especially during your own studies? So repeat the question for me one more time. So going off of diversity for, um, have you ever seen organizations such as Woke and MOCA prior in your personal experience, especially in your own studies? Um, definitely in my experiences, um, both at Duke, there was a couple of small groups and at Wayne State, there was a couple of small groups. One of the interesting challenges at Wayne State um, in terms of supporting student groups that were really about diversity um, 
about men or women of color was that we couldn't formally support them because there was a law, it's called Prop 2, where you cannot do anything special or different for one group, race, ethnicity, gender, than you do for other groups. And so we would walk a very thin line to make sure that, you know, we didn't get in trouble. Um, but uh, there was both a men's, women, men's group and women's group at Wayne State that I got a chance to work with and support. Um, always, you know, very fascinating because I, I don't know if it's the nature of the groups of what brings people together, but they inspired one another. You know, they would tell their stories about what they were doing and what they had to actually deal with to be able to get a degree. And I would go, I never went as, as many times as I'd like to because I just like to sit back and be a fly on the wall. And when you hear what people are doing to be able to get a college degree, it's just inspiring. Um, it's exciting. I think, I wish I could record some of it so I could show it to every faculty member. So actually understand what students are doing to be able to get that, 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 that degree. Um, so, know that and just finding ways to be able to support them through connecting them with leaders in the community uh, other opportunities we were able to bring in uh, a state senator uh, who was a first generation african-american this is back at uh, wayne state and you know his story was just you know incredible to hear and when you can hear stories from other people who are like you um, that that can encourage you to to understand that you can do great things and that there's plenty of opportunity and possibilities you just have to be able to rely on a great university like we have at UNLV. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that there's a lot of room for growth. A lot of room for growth here at UNLV for diversity, especially. And I feel like being in these orgs, we get to really experience all of that and kind of grow into that mindset more and more. Um, well, well you guys are not doing bad. You've got two strong groups from, you know, I've only been on the job for six months and so I'm, I'm learning the ropes still. Um, but I've been impressed that you all are really trying to be active. It's hard now. It's going to be, it's going to be different when we come back. And I really encourage you, if you need my support, make sure that you ask for it to be able to reach out to people, to be able to, to try to find ways to be able to make sure that folks who want to join the group, because everybody doesn't want to join every group, you know, people find their different little niches and niches as they go through college. Um, but these are ones that are very, very important. And so um, I, I think that you're farther along. Give, make sure you give yourself the proper credit. Thank you. Thank you. Um, being here for so such a short amount of time, what's your favorite thing about Vegas so far? You know, and it's so funny because in some ways I feel like I've been here a long time and other times it feels like it's only been a moment um, because, you know, I've actually crossed over into a new year. I was here in 2020. Now I'm here in 2021. Um, you know, I, I hate to say it because I have family in Texas that are surviving the, the really bad storm that's there. But I got to tell you, I love I love the weather back in Detroit. Somebody was writing me that they just had another snow of eight inches there. Uh, and it's not just about the snow. It, it really is that uh, the climate is very nice here. Um, I, uh, if, if, you, if you asked for it, I'd tell you, but I've lived a lot of places before. And one of the places that I've lived that was one of my favorites is Colorado because I love mountains. So as you can imagine, this place, um, I think a bunch of you guys, you probably travel to work, you go down the 215 or the 515, and you don't realize how absolutely beautiful the landscape here is and it's it's just a beautiful beautiful place 
And then the other piece that's my favorite piece that I've experienced so far is that um, the people here are just very, very nice and very welcoming. I mean, even in a pandemic when you don't get to meet a lot of people, everybody I've met has been helpful and thoughtful and trying to give, you know, everybody has an opinion about where to shop at or what the best food is. Um, and so, you know, that's that's been great as well. I've really enjoyed that and appreciated it. Well, thank you so much, President Whitfield, for answering those questions for us. And we're glad to hear that you've been adjusting to Vegas nicely and um, are very happy to be in your new home. Um, so yeah, we're just going to continue with some questions for you. Um, we have a pretty wide variety of questions, um, some more light, some on the heftier side. Um, but again, we're super excited to have you here. So yeah, we'll just jump in with some general um, UNLV campus-oriented questions um, that, of course, again, are um, rooted in diversity and inclusive measures and things along those lines. So the first one that I'm really interested on your take on is, what are your thoughts on implementing mandatory cultural sensitivity training campus-wide for faculty and staff, and how would you plan to implement such a thing? So, you know, that's, it's interesting. Whenever you try to mandate things, you have to be very careful because um, what you're talking about is something where we want people to embrace it. And sometimes when you try to force people, they want to push back on it just for this, not because of what it is, but it's because you told them to do it. And so um, this is kind of trying to thread the needle a little bit of to say that um, it would be something that we require, you know, versus mandate. It's so, so funny, it's a different word, but it means something different. And you really want to put forth the values behind that to say that because we want to be an inclusive, uh, we want to be a diverse, inclusive community, um, what we require is, is all of our faculty to be able to have this experience where they can learn about issues around diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, I think you'll find it fascinating. You know, you want to sell it a little bit versus making it this mandate that you have to try to do. Um, what I've seen for the most part, there's there's a few exceptions to it, but I don't think that there'd be any pushback from faculty and staff. I think that people are very open to be able to trying to learn a little bit more when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick 101 leadership piece of it. And that is, is that um, it's often better to convince people to convince you to do something that you want them to do than to try to tell them what to do, if that makes sense. Um, and again, I think because people are very ready for it, uh, and the faculty senate actually has come and talked about this issue and really is encouraging us to do it. And so it's great when they encourage us to do it, because then when you use words like require that this is something that we all have to do, there may be a minority of people that may be against it. Uh, and what's tough is, is that um, if you're against it like that, you're not going to learn anything. And so then the whole purpose is is not met. But if you can encourage them and, and allow it to be a learning experience that has value to it and is something where we can support our students, it's hard. I found a faculty member here who's against being able to do something good for our students. Um, so I think that we can be able to roll something out. Um, you know, there's some other ways to be able to do some of that work as well. I think the training is, is only the beginning anyway. Um, there really needs to be opportunities within our curriculum uh, for both faculty and students to be able to uh, deal with, think about, work on, talk about, have difficult conversations um, about diversity and inclusion issues. Um, 
this, I believe our university is ready for it. I, and, and again, we have a, uh, actually we were talking about some of the research that I've done. The research that I do is on individual differences, meaning, you know, we have these, these beautiful people that are on the screen here with, with one exception, um, that you all are different from one another, okay? And there are ways that you're alike and there's ways that you're different. And actually, if we went to your brother or your sister, there's ways that you're alike and there's ways that you're different. And so it's, I like what I study because it's the ability to think about people as individuals and that they may have differences in how they think about perceive things and whatever. And so the goal is always to bring as many people together as consensus as possible and try to help uplift those other people who aren't. And so that's that bigger goal uh, for that, that, that effort that you're, you're suggesting that we need to do. No, thank you for that. I really um, agree with what you're saying, especially in terms of how training is just the beginning and how um, UNLV is, of course, that's something we always talk about, the different, daring, diverse. We are um, very big in terms of diversity, inclusion, and um, supporting the big, beautiful city that we have um, full of people from all walks of life. So I really do appreciate that answer that you'd mentioned. Um, and kind of going off of that, um, when we talk about in terms of higher education and trying to create more diverse and inclusive spaces, um, I kind of just want to hear from your perspective um, and from your personal experiences, um, what does systemic racism in higher education look like to you? Because you've worked in a lot of different places and a lot of um, different forces of higher education, going through higher education yourself. Um, what are some examples um, of systemic racism in higher education? And um, what steps um, will you vow to take or are dedicated to taking to assist in dismantling those oppressive systems um, that exist in so many different aspects of higher education? Yeah. Um, so you've just decided not to give me any easy questions today. Thank you very much. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're, there's really? There's really? Oh, you're going to get there. You're going to start with the <laughs> Okay. Okay. No. Um, that one is a very interesting one. I will tell you that, um, I, I gave a, a talk a couple of weeks ago to, uh, uh, to Dartmouth University and the title of the talk was, what if you're the first or the only one? And in my career, I have never had a black professor um, at, uh, I should bring up my slides and try to remember what the heck I, I put down, but I was the first um, African-American who ever served in the provost office at Duke. So this is a old, you know, it's a university, it's older than ours, it's not real, real old. It was from the 1930s. Never had an African-American serve in the provost office. I was the first. Um, arguably, there was a person that, that served for like two months at Wayne State, but I was the first black provost there. Um, I was the first African-American in the uh, new program uh, that I that I worked in uh, as a faculty member at, at Penn State University. And so um, it's, it's to get to the point of that. So some of that's that you're the first because of lots of other reasons and others it's the first because of there is systemic racism that there is, um, uh, I think when we talk about systemic, or let's talk about structural racism, that these are things that we think about relative to policies, practices, or, you know, historical trends or whatever, that uh, actually show that, you know, all groups aren't treated equally. And um, it's so interesting because I think that uh, structural racism, when you say it to people, sometimes the first thing you say is, oh, you're calling me a racist. 
And it's like, well, no, but we, we have structures that exist in our universities that, you know, you, you look and say, this is 2021 and we can just say it here, I'm the first African-American president at UNLV. And so why is that? And some of that is not necessarily the structure of the structural racism at UNLV, which I believe there is some, um, but it's it within higher ed of that there is a huge pipeline problem that we have. Um, and it's, it, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I'd say the pipeline program was is that folks like me weren't encouraged to go on for a PhD and to be able to go into the academy. Now what we have is a little bit better numbers, but what we have is opportunities outside of academia. So you still then see a very low number. Um, I was, I forgot who I was talking to the other day and they were like, yeah, you know, we need more, you know, faculty of color and people are wrong when they say that they're just not out there. What they don't understand is, is that yes, they are out there and everybody wants them. And also when you get even more granular, they're, they're people like anybody else. They may go to someplace and be very happy and stay right there and never move. So that one person who graduates that one year has gone to that one university and they're not back in the pool where you can compete to try to bring them to your university. And so, you know, it's, it's just very interesting when you think about higher education and even thinking about uh, historically black universities and our university, which is a minority serving institution as well as a Hispanic serving institution. Um, one of the things that I'm dedicated to is that we've got to become a part of the solution. We've got to be, become a part of solving that pipeline problem by showing that, you know, for me, it's that academia is like the best life. It is the best life. You have control. Um, even when you think about the tough times that we live in now, you don't see, I, I can't think of an example that you can probably find one, but for the most part, um, professors aren't really at risk for losing their jobs. And particularly once they have tenure, they're not at risk. So you have this job and this lifestyle. Um, I have been to China, Taiwan, Germany, Sweden, Belgium. Um, can't think of where else. And it was in pursuit of knowledge and scholarship and making connections. When do you get to do that for a job? And I mean, half of that was done when I was a faculty member, not as an administrator. So um, I think that sometimes we need to tell the story of, of academia's really, really good lifestyle. Um, it ties into a bigger issue that we have in this country in some ways of that uh, we have a shortage of teachers. We have a shortage of people that wanna go into academia and to be tenure track people in academia. Um, but we have a, a problem with a K through 12 of that people don't want to because they don't think it's enough money. And I think sometimes they think the same thing about uh, higher education that, you know, if I'm gonna get a PhD, I'll get paid more money than that. Well, you gotta remember what you get. There's a bang for the buck. There's freedom and control and, and you get to pursue what you want. And for the most part, you don't have a boss. I mean, I have bosses, um, but you know, when you're a faculty member, you really don't. So um, it all wraps into what has turned out and produced structural racism because there were the lack of the ability to be able to progress, to be uh, attracted to certain universities. I mean, there have been universities, uh, I remember early in my career, I thought, 
boy, everybody says that they want a black professor. I'm sending out my, my CV and nobody wants me. But it was also at a time when I didn't have very many publications. Um, believe it or not, now I still have people that write me and say, oh, would you apply for this job? And I'm like, mm, I don't think you know I got the best job in the world right now. And you might be looking, you know, you've looked at my publications or you know my, my, my reputation in the field, but you know, you're not looking where I am now. You know, they're not even paying attention because they're just trying to get somebody who they think is an African-American and somebody of color who will add to theirs. Um, I think at UNLV, we can increase the number of diverse faculty that we have by making sure we realize who we are, that this is a great place to be. And then when people come in, you show them that it's a great place to be. You don't just say, oh, show them through and let's see if they're good enough to be here. Be confident that they're good enough to be here or you wouldn't have invited them in the first place. Then say, wow, this is the kind of place that you want to be at. And there are, like I said, you know, we need to be a part of the solution of the pipeline. And we also need to make a concerted effort to when we find diverse candidates that uh, if they are ones who are good diverse candidates that we really do find a way to recruit them here and attract them here. Thank, thank you so much for that. Um... You actually touched on a lot of the questions that we have. So thank you. You're there we go. So now you're ahead of the game. Ones, right? Okay. <laughs> um, so kind of just um, going off of you mentioning how UNLV is a minority serving institution and a Hispanic serving institution. Um, and in terms of um, one big thing that has been really big amongst the students that is a resource that students would love to see on our campus is cultural resource centers. Mm -hmm. And we've heard it time and time again. Um, at least I believe that I, uh, all the folks in this room can attest to um, every time we bring this issue up or this need and um, this desire that students have for a cultural resource center um, in, a, in an institution that it so speaks so highly of um, its population of students and faculty and the different daring diverse um, and everything along those lines. Um, what are steps that we can take um, if not through administration, um, but as students to have those identity centers happen so that we're able to have resources that are implemented for our students here to support the diversity that we have on campus. I thought we were getting to the easier questions. You're, you're still not there yet. Oh my goodness. That was a, it's a fascinating question because um, being newer here, um, one of the things that I observe is that we have a lot of different committees and offices that deal with diversity and inclusion and social justice. I think that it's, it's, it's just so cool that we had a social uh, justice office before social justice was cool. I mean, that's, that, that really, I think, spoke volumes of people before. But what we've done is we keep adding committees to things. And we don't have, you know, not going to have a singular voice, but we have so many voices. I think that in some ways that I'm telling you somebody new, it's, it's a little confusing. So I think about offices like inter, the intersection is kind of one of those places. It's a one stop shop and it does certain things. And then the office for what is it? Social justice and social. Um, I never get it right. And social diversity and social justice. Um, they handle different issues for students. And then, you know, we have a chief diversity officer. 
she currently does one slice and then there's some other ones that do other slices. And I think that there needs to be a little bit more organization so that if you had those particular centers offices, it would be clear that they stand alone or, or that they, they serve that purpose and it's not an overlap with others. Because you, what I feel like now is we've got this interesting overlap. I don't know about for you all as students, maybe this is, I need to turn the questions on you all. Do you all know when you have something you wanna do or that you're interested in, do you know where to go? Or do you say, well, do you go here? Do you go there? You know, is it hard to figure out? Because we have, it's funny, it's, 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 it's kind of a confused, um, situation of, of riches because you have different offices that do different little parts and pieces. And what I think in some ways is, is that if you had a center, like I've been at, even helped to create at Wayne State, you know, cultural centers, that typically it's because there is such a vacuum in the things that need to be done and supported that are not done by existing ones, you know that that's where you'd go. It was, it's clear, there's no confusion about it. But see, I don't know that that exists here. Um, I've heard, you know, I did my listening tour and I listened to a lot of students and, you know, they were fans of different offices, but it was for always for different things. And if you put them all together, you might have a cultural center. But right now we have, you know, three, four, five different offices. I think that's the challenge that I struggle with. Do you think um, there's a benefit in having a particular office? Is it is it the office and the people and the connections that they can do? Or is it the space, you know, kind of almost the physical space where you can go, you feel like there are people that are like-minded people, that there's programming that's focused on one particular group or another particular group? I think I would have to say from my experience, I think the space on our campus would be extremely beneficial because like you had mentioned, um, it's almost overwhelming at so many of the different resources that we have or in terms of um, how those resources are dispersed. They are very helpful. And like you said, it's nice to have things a little bit here, and a little bit there, and um, always knowing that there is some kind of resource. But in terms of different things that have happened on our campus, in terms of um, harassment of both black, Asian students, um, Latinx identifying students, um, a lot of things that we've heard um, that I can even personally attest to is just having that space, like um, as you mentioned, for like-minded people and being able to know that there is a space here on this campus for folks um, like me and folks who identify within certain groups as I do, um, which I feel like would be extremely beneficial for UNLV students to, like you said, eliminate kind of the hustle and bustle of where am I supposed to go for these things? Um, and it has been slightly discouraging hearing from um, different um, folks who within either higher admin or just different supervisors and different folks on campus um, of kind of what you were mentioning, kind of um, asking why do you want more when these things are already there? When it's great that these things are already there, but this isn't these things that are already there aren't necessarily fulfilling the needs that the students would like to see. No. Um, and when it does come to um, the Student Diversity and Social Justice Center, I apologize for that, it's Student Diversity and Social Justice, um, they take on so much and um, they really are the brute force of diversity here on our campus and all of us are extremely appreciative for them. Um, but of course it is a lot of work on them, it's a lot of work on their shoulders um, especially in terms of, like you said, for other um, organizations like the intersection. Um, it's almost like an overwhelming amount of responsibility for these um, 
small places um, or small um, bits and pieces of spots on campus that do support um, these things, if that makes sense, if that was a coherent thought that I just had. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, that's helpful for me. I was taking a few notes um, because I've heard the, the desire to have cultural, uh, cultural center, cultural centers. And, um, you know, uh, place does matter. Um, you need to feel like you have a, a place. Um, you know, you're not going to necessarily have everybody have, you know, one mind of things, but but just feeling like there's a place where you're comfortable and there's certain kinds of things that 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 make you feel affiliated, connected, uh, even a sense of belonging, as it were, in a bigger sense. Um, and I think that uh, what I wrote down from what you said was, is that maybe breaking down um, the different component parts that might go into a, a center or centers and to see where these different offices are bringing parts and pieces of them. Because when you listen to what they do, they're incredible. They, they, they really are. I think the intersection, um, I think, has a wonderful place because they can catch people. And so there's certain people that go through there. There's certain things you go there. And then there's other times when they hand it off to somebody else. And then they do great and wonderful things. I mean, even under the uh, Office of Student Affairs, Dr. Fain is, is you know, she is astronomically uh, very, very good, can divert people, get them to where they need to be and, and support them. But I think what you're, what I'm trying to lead you to, to suggest to me is, is that we really need to take a step back, say, what are all the parts and pieces? And then what is it that we need? So then we create a cohesive, maybe a little easier one-stop shop kind of way in which you can get to those kinds of things that a cultural center could provide. No, yeah, hundred percent. And again, thank you for that. Um, and I know I gotta watch my time right here. So I will wrap it up with an easier question on my part for this one. Um, Thanks. <laughs> but um, this is a very pressing question um, that was brought forth to you in this meeting. Um, have you found a Vegas home for the hairline? Or in other words, how has the process been of finding a barber in Las Vegas been, especially amidst the pandemic? Well, you know, it's very bad. You know, you get on these calls and you go, God, my hair looks horrible. Um, but um, through, actually, there was a, a group of uh, African-American uh, fraternities and sororities that, that greeted me back in like September. And, you know, they were like, well, do you have any questions for us? And I said, yeah, where's a barbershop? And so uh, I have found one. I've been going to All Stars. Uh, this gentleman there does, does he, you know, you kind of, whether you like it or not, you kind of get used to it. And you feel like I got to give them a few times to be able to do it right or wrong. And then once you do that, then you don't want to change unless it's like horrible. Um, but uh, he, he works out so far. Uh, he's, he, he looks, now I found, I keep feeling like I'm telling too much sometimes, but I found this home that I want and I'm going to try to move into in a few months. Now it's farther away. So I don't know whether I'm going to use that barbershop or try to find another, but, um, you know, uh, what, what's funny is, is that, um, I have had some of my colleagues, uh, take very seriously that they don't want to, um, go out during the pandemic. And so they've got like, you know, afros and, you know, it, I'm like, you know, hey, you got to keep yourself kind of tight, you know, there. Uh, so uh, I go and go mask. And, and so I have found one. I can at least answer that question. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for that. And I'm, and I'm glad that All Stars is doing you right. So <laughs> as of right now. Um, but again, yeah, thank you so much for asking, um, answering those questions that I had for you. And now I'm going to pass it over to our VP of Mocha, Abe. Thank you so much. Um, glad to have you here, um, President Whitfield. And I think my questions will be a little easier on you. I know that was a lot, so don't worry. Um, I just have a few questions that are kind of more student relation focused, just um, on projects that some students have brought up, some ideas that I've heard. I'm currently a senator for the College of Liberal Arts and have been interacting directly with um, student-led projects, student initiatives and ideas. So I've kind of heard a little bit of everything around campus so, and I wanted to relay some of those ideas back to you. Um, but given that, before I kind of get into those projects, um, there has been a lack um, of connection between students, faculty and administration, um, especially one that I've noticed as a student leader in CSUN um, while kind of developing the, these initiatives and these big projects and ideas um, with the help of faculty and admin. So I kind of wanted to ask you what you think has that divide and how you think we could bridge that divide for a more cohesive um, planning and, and more of a better relationship between students and faculty that is less intimidating because I know a lot of students kind of hold back on reaching out or um, talking to professors or wh whoever it may be because of it. So I wanted to see your opinion on it and how we could kind of mend that relationship. Well, and I apologize. I've been turning off my microphone because of course, you know, any other time of the day they could come, but the people are coming to do, you know, blowing leaves on, on my lawn. So I apologize for the background noise. Wow. Um, you know, the you, you ask a very interesting uh, challenge that we have almost on every college campus. And that is, is that how do you find opportunities for students and faculty to just like be people for a moment and to share thoughts and ideas and think about how to go forward. And, you know, we're blessed in that we have a lot of faculty who really do step out and, and really actively engage students. And so you never have to feel like you're being inappropriate there. They're offering up, you know, opening a door for you to be able to do that. And how can we do more of that? Um, one, I think we need to celebrate it a little bit more. And two, even be able to have some other kinds of, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll show my hand here a little bit. I'm a big fan of student challenges, okay? Student challenges where students from different disciplines come together on a team, they work together, they have a faculty mentor that helps them to solve some big problem, you know, um, uh, noise during uh, Skype calls or something like that, you know, something like that. And so those are the kinds of real world problem solving interactions that are just fantastic because you don't want to just have one where it's another setting where a faculty lectures to you and then you speak back to them. You actually want to have an interaction with them, you know, to talk to them a little bit. Um, one of the things that I think is the perfect opportunity, and I, I will say that I'm extremely biased because it's, it is probably how I saved my academic career was that I was a minority biomedical research student when I was an undergraduate. And I got to work with a faculty member so much so that, you know, we would have dinner at his house and we would do other things. It wasn't just seeing him in the classroom, it was seeing him in the lab and then writing papers and, and trying to do poster presentations. And then we developed a relationship over time, which, you know, I hate to say it because I don't want to age him and I don't want to age me, but I mean, it's, it's 30 plus years and we, we have still stayed connected to one another. 
even though we do completely different things now. So um, those are valuable relationships and experiences that you can have. And I think that you're, you're very wise to try to, actually, I'm gonna add that to my list. Um, Perfect. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's funny. Um, some, some professors are just designed, they do it naturally. And then others, I think if they're encouraged to, and that they see that it's kind of normal to do that, there's more of it that happens. Now, the other piece that is, uh, I can tell you, it's one of my, uh, I know that all of you all watched the state of the university address and you hung on every word I said. Um, but one of the things that, uh, was in there, but wasn't in there, maybe as much as I'd like to see done is that. I want to see us be more of a, uh, a campus where you all as students think about your college as life revolves around college, not college revolving around life. When, when you don't live on campus where that's the only thing that you know, you have a real life, you have a job, you have all these other things that are all off campus you can sometimes not as feel as connected to the campus and the things going on and the opportunities that arise. And I wanna figure out if we can find ways to be able to increase the number of student organizations we have, the kinds of student activities that go on, um, even build a campus where it's easier, better to study here than it is anyplace else. So that you want to spend that time on campus and that it has everything that you need. Um, our campus is so far down the road on so much of this, like childcare. We have a lot of students that have childcare issues. Well, we have a childcare center and we're, we've got some fantastic people from the community that are interested in perhaps helping us increase our capacity to be able to have childcare. So then it allows people again to be on campus even longer. And I think the more we do that, the more the kind of opportunities that you're talking about arise just simply because people are there. Um, and because, those kinds of things not only keep the students on campus, they also keep the faculty on campus. Um, if you can get your coffee and your latte and your little, you know, biscuit and and whatever, and then there's these other things to do, you'll you'll make the flow of your day different and you'll spend more time on campus. So even, you know, we don't have to have a million dorms or 31,000 dorms for every student, but that it's a place that you know, when I go there, I can take care of all those things I need to do. And then when I have to go off campus, I can take care of those other things. But school becomes kind of the epicenter of how your life is structured rather than the other way around. And I know that that, you know, it, it's not it's not easy to do, but but it can't be done. Um, you know, one of the other things that we need to try to increase as much as we can is internships and and, and student work study, which is something I want to look a little further into because I feel not knowing enough about it. I, I just want to have as much work study as possible. So students could use opportunities to be on campus more, which again, just being on campus and learning more about what goes on, it just, it provides a lot of opportunities. So um, I think that that kind of interaction that you're talking about comes from having that kind of both physical structure and opportunity structure. Absolutely. Fantastic response. Thank you for that. And I completely agree wholeheartedly, especially because something that I recently found from how important like these conversations between students and admin are 
Um, I recently started assigning senators to meet directly with their deans and discuss ideas and projects that they may have and get feedback and kind of just collaborate and brainstorm together. And uh, something that I heard that kind of shocked me a bit was that um, most of the deans relayed that that's never happened before, that direct communication has never happened before. And then we started receiving um, staff contacting us to work on projects and that's never happened on our end before. And I think it's just a push that we need to start making a bit and it'll all follow through um, from then on. But something that you mentioned that I thought was also very, very interesting was how research really connected you to your college experience and going further from that. Um, and one initiative that students have kind of voiced to me is um, that there are a lot of research opportunities. Obviously, UNLV is a research-oriented school, which is a fantastic resource for students to kind of take advantage of. Um, but a lot of it is focused for uh, medical research, for science research. And I wanted to kind of begin the conversation of expanding research opportunities for students and what this could look like in expanding it for political science majors in the College of Liberal Arts, for philosophy, for English, for business. And I think it's definitely something that um, can be done, but I wanted to get your input on how do you think it could most effectively um, be done? I don't know. What you just said sounds like you want my job, man. That's exactly what needs to be done. Okay, I'm taking it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, just, just let me know. I'll pack my stuff. I got a couple of boxes over here. <laughs> no, I, I think your point is very well taken. I think it, it, you're, you've articulated it absolutely perfectly. I was writing it down. I, I hope we can get some faculty and some deans to be able to hear this podcast because that is exactly it needs to be more than just kind of the medical sciences. I think that's what we think traditionally. But there are so many opportunities. I mean, every person who has an advanced degree has done some kind of research whether it's reviewing a book, whether it's reviewing a series of, 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 of data that that's, was collected from 19, the 1900s, we all do something in terms of that scholarship. And that's the piece that needs to be shared. I think sometimes when we say research, I think it becomes a strange kind of parochial thing that people think exists in a lab somewhere off on a you know, different part of the university. But there's, there's scholarship that's done all the time. And it's that kind of thinking and problem solving and figuring out how you understand. And, you know, it's so funny, you know, from our phones, I always think about it. We just think we get knowledge instantly, but that's not knowledge. That's just information. The knowledge comes from taking that information and thinking about it and processing it and having a faculty member who's already engaged in that share with you their process helps you. And so, um, we're having some conversations about how that might be able to be done. You know, there's some, I, I don't think that we should be draconian and say everybody has to do something, but having a, an opportunity and a benefit to engaging in something like that to be a part of what is your standard degree, whether it be independent study or research hours or whatever, um, I think could be expanded ever so slightly. I think you see that in some degrees and not in others. And I think it's something that we could expand because I think you're exactly right about um, there's lots to be able to learn from literature and history and anthropology and, and others that we don't traditionally think about research, but they do research. Um, but uh, some of that is, you know, it's either going to be your job or my job, whoever, you know, lasts as president through this podcast is to make sure that we encourage faculty 
to, to make sure that they take those opportunities. And I, I think that we have faculty who do do that. I think that we just need to make sure that we encourage people, that we reward it, that we, we say that this is what we do want to see and not just leave it up to, you know, the ones who happen to step up or, you know, sometimes it's funny. A faculty member sometimes just with a certain student has never done it with, they've taught a hundred class, they've never done it before, but they connect with this one student and then all of a sudden they go gangbusters. And so we need to make sure that that's communicated that when you find those opportunities and those, and those options, and, and maybe it is through student challenges that we make sure that faculty are involved. Um, whenever I've run them, I make sure that there's, there's sometimes two levels of faculty. There's a faculty advisory committee that, that helps to figure out how the challenge should be designed. And then there's faculty mentors who end up helping committees or uh, helping students. And sometimes that advisory committee even judges the contest. So they end up becoming intricately involved in that student challenge process, in that thinking, in that research, in all of that. So there's different ways to be able to do it. And so um, you come up with a couple ideas, I'll come up with a couple ideas, you know, and, and we'll see. Debate and see who's going to be elected as the next president. I don't want to debate with you. I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm smart enough to know that that's not what I want. That, that, ain't, that ain't going to be a good look. No, but you are... I think you're you're very right in that when I think about students who are on the other side when they finish they're out competing for jobs there are certain things that employers want and I've been I've been talking with um, a lot of tech companies more than anything else um, because that's where uh, when we think about job growth and, and job numbers there's there's huge numbers there it is funny that many of them will say I don't really care what major you have. Now, if you have two or three majors, like some people we know on this call, um, yeah, uh, you might just beat them down. They just say, look, okay, you got a, you've got a degree that'll cover every corner. But what a lot of them wanna see is, is that they wanna see not only really good skills in terms of that major, uh, but sometimes the major doesn't matter. They wanna see the soft skills. They wanna see what I like to call emotional intelligence. How can you solve problems? How can you work with people? How can you have difficult conversations? How can you show leadership? And those are things that um, I was working on it yesterday. I'm, and I, I actually have sent off an email to uh, some colleagues to help me out because I think through, we have LinkedIn learning. There's actually many videos in there that if you put them together in a curriculum and maybe we create a badge for you so that you could put it on your LinkedIn account and say, you know, I know how to do ethics. You know, that's what these jobs want to see, though. It's those extra little things that will help you stand out. Um, you all's generation, uh, and it, I've already seen that it's true. Um, you all don't do the, I, I got a job at, you know, Lockheed Martin in 1952. And, you know, uh, 40 years later, I got my silver watch. You guys are going to move from job to job to job. The estimates are somewhere between three and five years. So those jobs... Those companies, those industries, those opportunities, they want to, you know, they're capitalists. They want to get the most out of you that they can. So they want you to come in as prepared as possible. And with other, those other emotional skills, those are the things that they typically see people develop into. And that many of them believe, like uh, I, the example I bring from Detroit actually was Quicken Loans. They have these other things that develop those soft skills so that when somebody's been at the company for three years and then there's an opening, they see the kind of other work that they've done and say, yeah, 
they've done some leadership sorts of things. They've been with our coffee for cars, you know, uh, special thing. And so they've shown these other abilities. And so they, they try to grow their own, but if you come in with those things, they're gonna wanna keep you. And it may even be that it makes it a more attractive place for you and you wanna stay longer. That's what their bigger goal is, is to keep you as long as they can. So whatever they invest in you, they get more mileage out of it. So if we give you all the skills that you need, you're gonna be more competitive because they say, I don't have to spend as much time developing you. I completely agree, um, especially because in the development for students throughout their undergraduate experience or even graduate experiences, um, research does make all the difference when you have a publication on that resume or you have the yep. experience of doing it. So absolutely. Um, transitioning on to uh, one last question before I pass it off to my counterpart VP, um, I wanted to kind of talk to you about a diversity initiative that, that I feel is definitely a basis and a foundation for other initiatives, like, like we just mentioned, the Multicultural Center. If that were ever to happen, um, I wanted to bring up um, something that came up from the Muslim Student Association. Um, mm -hmm. They contacted CSUN, they started a petition um, for the Muslim prayer room. Um, and what that kind of entails is um, kind of taking into account that Muslim students do have to pray several times a day um, and they do need a kind of private, quiet place to um, do that in. And I've heard from several students that they've had to do it in restrooms, under the stairs, um, in like random closets. And I think that's a bit unfortunate um, for those students to have to experience, especially given um, that we have a church right here on campus um, for a separate religion. And I think it's something that we definitely are trying to address. But I wanted to get um, your feedback on that. What's the best way of going about that? Um, and how can we do that for students um, in regards to different religions and identities and adhering to everyone as a whole and making sure that nobody slips through the cracks? Now, now see, that's almost an easy question, okay? Pay attention. That was almost an easy question. Because I can tell you, we were actually just talking about this yesterday, My, myself and uh, Fred Treadup who's my chief of staff in my office. We've been trying to figure out how we make sure we, it's, it's lack of better terminology, kind of threading the needle between um, making sure that we do that almost separation of church and state. Um, and so <clears throat> it's, it's, I'm gonna be transparent here. If you call it a prayer room or a Muslim room, then everybody wants their own room, but, if you think about the purpose for it, which is for prayer or for meditation, if you call it a meditation room, then guess what? It actually then can be multi-purpose. Um, you know, you're not seen as as violating kind of the it's we don't have the church and state rules, really. But we, we try to keep that um, something that as a public institution that we don't, you know, kind of cross those lines too much. So but we want to make sure that we know that there's a need. We know that there's a need at multiple times during the day. And so it has to be an area that can be open, that can be shared, that can be accessible. And so uh, I think we've got the criteria down. And so now we're looking around on campus to see where something like that could be. I think the last piece of the puzzle we have is that how many people are gonna use it? Is it gonna be a hundred? Is it gonna be a thousand? Um, you know, I. I think that we can find a place that may be a kind of a medium-sized room that could be used for that. Um, then we even have talked about, 
I'm telling you, we had this long conversation yesterday about this. Um, so what happens if you have, um, you know, and I, I, I have friends who are Muslim and I'm trying to think of the time, uh, but there's a time in the evening when you do your evening prayers. So what if you have another group um, where uh, for Christians, for example, it's Lent. And so that, you know, that's the time when they, who does somebody get, you know, priority over the other? So do you have to have a sign up? And if you're going to actually, if you have, for Muslims, when you pray and you pray every day, you know, you would be on the sign-up sheet every single hour and then no one else could use it. So then how do you make those things fair? How do you make it big enough so that it accommodates what the needs actually are? We're, we're getting closer to that. I think we're going to figure out a solution for that um, because it is something where we want everybody. I think um, there was one estimate that there's over 2,000 Muslim students actually on our campus. And so, you know, when you have that many students, there, there is a need for a facility for capacity to be able to, to, to pursue that and to have that as one of the facilities that we actually support. Um, we shall see, you know, the future, we got, a, we got a lot of really big ideas and hopeful things. You know, one of them is in the master planning that we're doing is even the idea of creating another student center in a different part of campus, kind of on the other side of the library so that people that are on that side are a little closer to whatever is in the student center. And if we have more room, we'll have more room for those sorts of things to go on as well. So um, I think that's the long-term kind of plan and hope that we have, but we're working on trying to find something sooner. Thank you so much. I'm very glad that um, that project is being developed or at least a version of it, um, especially because you mentioned how um, we don't know how many students may utilize it, but every single student, even if it's just one, definitely deserves a space um, for their religion, cultural purposes, or just their, themselves as an identity. So um, that's commendable that um, we're doing that. But I wanted to, since we were also just talking about kind of that um, conversation of having staff and faculty and then students um, having open dialogue and a conversation, um, I wanted to open it up to you. If you have any questions for any of us, any ideas or any feedback that you may want from students directly? I mean, we are all students of color that are very um, well equipped in talking and representing students. And I think um, you are a fantastic person to have that conversation with. So please, if you have any questions, feel free. Well, you know, one question that I have is that um, it is interesting becoming a president during a pandemic. And in some ways, it's no different. There's still the same issues. There's we were talking about a student's residency problem and you know there's all those things that still come up but it's like yeah you see it but it's not the same thing like in real time like i've walked out to the quad outside of the fdh building and i've seen you know maybe 50 students i haven't seen the thousands that you will see so there's questions that i have about um i won't even ask about parking because i know that it's a problem it's a problem <laughs> University campus. Don't get it started. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to do some interesting things. We're going to be able to enhance the Tropicana Garage. Um, that is going through the works, and we're going to uh, hopefully start on that relatively soon. So we'll address that issue. But I'm wondering, do you all, when you come on campus, feel comfortable? Meaning that, do you have a place where you can go and, and, and feel comfortable? Is it the student center? Is it, you know, the quad? Or is it within one of the buildings? Do you have a space where you can feel that way? And I guess I come back to that, that uh, proposition I was saying about being on campus. Um, 
what would make it more attractive for you to spend more time on campus? So I'll begin and I'll pass it off to anyone that also wants to answer the question. Um, but one thing for me personally that I very much enjoy is the CSUN office space. It's a private mm -hmm. space. You can go up there. You have time to do your homework, to talk to people that you want to. But unfortunately, that's just because I'm in CSUN. That isn't accessible to uh, all the students that need a space, a quiet place to kind of congregate and talk to people or do homework. So I think having spaces like that expand to the rest of the student body would definitely be something that's beneficial. Um, I know we have a lot of kind of outdoor spaces where people can kind of find where it's it's nice looking and quiet and they want to, but I think having a bigger kind of um, area where we can have each student kind of have a place for themselves would be uh, definitely something that's nice. Well, what about the library? I mean, <laughs> that library is so beautiful. It is. That is, it's incredible. And when I've seen it, you know, it's funny because people were social distancing. And so it was like every other one. And I was like, okay, so what is the real capacity over here? And with all the students that we have, is there enough capacity actually at the library for what you, for when you want it? And I'm seeing heads shake no. That's so interesting. Yeah, so that library looks absolutely massive and it looks beautiful. But when you're in there during midterms, finals, you're sitting on the floor studying. It gets packed super quickly. And the hours, they're not compatible, especially now when it closes at 8 p.m. And me being off campus, I love to go down to the library as I feel safe being on there. But having to finish all of my work before 8 p.m., it's not really compatible. And then also another thing is that so at the University of Washington, Seattle, they have this place called uh, the Susilo Library, and it basically looks like Hogwarts, and I love it. Um, but their library is open 24-7. Now, I don't know how plausible that is, if we were to ever is open this, up again. But is the library got those restricted hours during just the pandemic, or is that, you know, if you all have been here long enough, was it during the regular year, is it? It was during regular, so the library closed at midnight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then we have like smaller libraries like the teacher development library, but that's kind of hidden in the middle of like, I don't know where I'm going, but I'll find it eventually. So that's that's another thing. It is a beautiful library. If you have not checked out Special Collections, I would highly recommend to do so as a historian. I love that place and I would live there if I could. Well, you're a little bit of everything. You, you'll have fun all over campus if I, if I try to pursue uh, all of the majors that you have. You know, but it is interesting that, um, you know, sometimes I, I think we've got to think about how students work. And um, nighttime is a time sometimes, you know, particularly if you have to balance other things around life, that that, that study time may be nighttime and that it's going to start at 10 o'clock at night. And so, um, you know, there's, there's lots of other things that go into it, too, because we always want to make sure that you're safe. And we are an urban campus and we have to think about that as well. But um, it is interesting. I, I, I'm still taking notes on you all. I hope you're not taking notes on me. But, uh, you know, the idea of can we find some ways to have additional study places and, and, and places that people can do things later into the evening while maintaining safety, maintaining avail availability of resources, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, because you all's clock is just different. You know, you, you, you all's clock is, of how you operate and how you do things is different. 
and we need to see if we can accommodate that. And I think that that it fits in with my goal, which is, is I want you to come to the university and stay at the university longer. So to do that, you have to have some place to actually be. There has to be someplace open. So thank you for that point. That's that's a very interesting point. Do you have any more other questions for us? Other questions. Um, do you have friends who couldn't get into UNLV? You know, we consider ourselves, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not truly an, an access place because the GPA to get in here is tough. Um, you know, you, you can't be a slouch. You gotta, you gotta bring it from high school to get in. Um, and one of the things that I think about is that, you know, I think UNLV will likely want, need to grow in the next five, 10 years. And partly that will because of the demographics that are going to change. We can already see that that we have a lot of people from other states moving here, and I think it's going to be it's going to do nothing become more attractive. Um, and one of the other possibilities that we have here that um, I have such a good colleague in Federico uh, Zaragoza from CSN is the idea of the the transfer from community college into four year degrees. Um, I think that uh, community colleges play an extremely important role of that there's workforce things that you can go to community college and then there's other things where you start the community college and then you come before your university. Sometimes because you changed what you even thought you wanted to do. Um, but I just wondered at this time, do we have a whole bunch of people that end up saying, I wanted to go to UNLV, but I ended up going to the community college first and then I show up there because we do get we don't get a lot, but we, we do get a pretty good number of transfer students actually come from CSN and from some of the other uh, community colleges. Do you have friends like that? I wanted to see if you had a story about them, of how, how maybe they matriculated or how they navigated that. Yeah, so interestingly enough, oh, interestingly enough, um, I actually went to College of Southern Nevada prior to coming to UNLV myself. Um, a little bit different because I was College of Southern Nevada High School, um, but I got to experience the transition. And one thing that at UNLV that we do very successfully is kind of being accessible to Nevada-born um, students, students that went to Nevada high schools. Uh, the transition and kind of the accessibility is definitely there. Um, I think kind of outreaching beyond Nevada is something that we could definitely do more of. I think. Um, kind of getting students from all over each corner is definitely valuable because um, like we say, we value diversity and diversity of thought and ideas. And I think although we have fantastic students obviously coming from Nevada high schools and coming from CSN here, I think we could also diversify kind of the ideas and the projects that we implement if we get some minds from different places. Like we just mentioned another university having a fantastic idea um, so kind of getting some people from everywhere is great, but uh, genuinely UNLV does have a great kind of transition system, especially um, through like college credits and all the credits that you take at CSN, being able to transfer over to UNLV is probably the most, um, the most significant and best part of the transition, 100%. Great, that's good to hear. So I have one more question. Um, what is your favorite thing to do when you're on campus? Other than to go to class, we know that. But it, what, 
Uh, what's your favorite thing? We got four of you here, so I should have four things. Um, what's either your favorite thing to do or your favorite place to be on campus? Okay, so I'm a program assistant at SDSJ among a multitude of things. You'll probably see me a lot more on campus now. Yeah, yeah. Triple major, triple jobs, it's fine. Um, but my favorite thing to do when I arrive on campus is since I'm off campus and I do drive like 30 to 45 minutes every single day, at least pre-COVID, uh, my favorite thing was seeing all the students I helped. I'm the APIME and international student program assistant and being able to hear, oh, this is my country. These are my stories. This is why I came to UNLV. It, it makes my little history heart, you know, you know, go bottom and it really makes me happy. Um, being from a marginalized community, I often felt alone, especially being a queer woman of color, especially. Um, I obviously look white, but I am half white, half Filipino. And it was definitely isolating for everyone else to be in the medical field and I'm the only arts major. Um, so hearing these students being like, I'm so thankful for what you create. I'm so thankful for you talking about the issues that we're talking about. Oh, I didn't know about this history. That's what makes me smile. and motivates me to go into campus every single day. That's great. In terms of favorite places on campus, um, I, of course, the hospitality major in me and always trying to sell the college. <laughs> um, I do love the hospitality building. Um, and I love what the hospitality building does for students. Um, it allows an open space um, for students that aren't even um, necessarily hospitality majors to come and enjoy a state-of-the-art um, space here on campus. And that's what a lot of um, students love about it, because um, it was designed to mimic like a resort feel, more of a professional educational setting, um, as well as Rebel Grounds, um, which I don't think you've had the opportunity to go to, but Rebel Grounds is the entirely student-run coffee shop and hospitality, and uh -huh. um, which is, I feel like, a prime example of what we were talking about earlier of really um, pushing student collaborations in terms of um, meeting students where they're at and uh, meeting students with their interests and bringing those together. Um, and that was actually a big part of our faculty um, through like Chef uh, Mark Sandoval, our current Dean, uh, uh, Dean Stumaker, um, Assistant Chef Stephanie, so many people that are dedicated to being able to bring students together to really make um, our students feel at home in their programs. and like they're really benefiting um, from what you were talking about earlier, having um, college surround um, life and being able to integrate all those different parts of students' lives. Um, so yeah, for me, hospitality is the place to be. I have to echo that a bit. I stay, there's a little <laughs> patio area right on top of hospital. That's the spot, I mean, come on. No debate, no debate, but um, there's also a fantastic spot outside of the Honors College right in front of um, the law school. There's like little tables outside and there's like these vines and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love the vines. But I think it also brings up a great point that um, outdoor space is really, really great, especially during maybe not like midsummer, but like leading up to the summer. Um, I think it's where a lot of people also kind of get to like see each other and run into each other and kind of talk and bring out um, conversations and collaborations. So I think also an emphasis on like outdoor seating, shade structures and all that um, is definitely beneficial for the university as well. That's great. And then for, for me, I think one of the things 
For a long time, I was, uh... Or, like, really helped them in a tough spot. And I think those are really the best memories that I have so far. Like, it's just really good moments that you could really help them and really know that you changed their life or something like that. And I think that's really a big passion right now. That's great. That's great. Yeah, you know, that is the, the struggle, I guess, for me during the pandemic. You know, we live on golf carts. You know, we race around golf carts and everything. And so... I see the universe, but I know I don't see it the way that you all see it, you know, in like real time of studying and going to class and coming outside and whatever. And I think I cannot wait. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what this fall looks like. Um, but I'm being very, very hopeful that we'll be able to maybe flip the way we're doing things now, where we only have 20% that are in person and 80% remote, that will be 80% in person and only 20% remote. Um, you know, I, I want us to have our campus back. I want us to have our campus life uh, back. And uh, I'm very hopeful that we're gonna get there. So uh, make sure that you all are taking care of yourselves. I love it. I even see, you know, a couple of you all may be double masked there. And uh, uh, that's the way that we're gonna be able to get through it and get to the point where, well, you know, we can have this different kind of world that we live in, but one where at least we get to see each other. Absolutely. We have to be hopeful. Um, we're getting there slowly but surely, but um, slow and steady wins the race, so we'll be okay. Um, and now, just to close off this section, thank you so much for asking your questions. I'm now going to pass it over to Ava to continue on. I swear these aren't hard-hitting questions again. Um, I promise. But uh, these questions are in regards to the coronavirus, which we are obviously still in. I'm still processing last March. I don't know about y'all, but I'm still like, March is not in 14 days. Uh, don't believe it. I do not believe it. So personally, uh, I'm going to use my history in Asian American studies major. <laughs> so this is where I'm coming in. Um, the Asian American community has been hit hard by the coronavirus, either in death, um, in the medical field, or even through anti-Asian attacks. Yeah. Um, when COVID first unraveled in America back in March of 2020, uh, personally, I dealt with xenophobia remarks. I dealt with people following me on campus, calling me slurs, spitting on me, everything like that. This was prior to your, to your presidency. And a thing that I'm having, at least a lot of students are having as well, is that uh, Asian students do not feel seen. They don't feel heard, especially in regards to this. Uh, the president before your president Liana took three months to talk about xenophobia and even then it was kind of a well I'm at the end of my presidency might as well as do it it did not come genuine it did not come from the heart as we felt so in regards to this we know that uh, you aforementioned that UNLV you want it in like the uh, post-COVID days and everything like that but you know a lot of students they may feel like their ethnicity is on the line as if like I go back on campus and either people aren't vaccinated enough or like there's another like, you know, God forbid another uh, pandemic, but um, I want to know 
how you and your cabinet is going to imagine UNLV in a post-COVID world? Are we still going to implement masks? Are we still going to have remote learning? Are we still going to have like social distancing and everything like that? And also, what are you going to do to protect Asian American students, or more broadly, APIMA students, which stands for Asian Pacific Islander and Middle Eastern students? Yeah. So I, I think there's two parts to your question there. One is, is that what does our future look like? Our future has to be guided by science. And what our science tells us is, is that truly until we get at least up to 70%, um, masks are a part of what, what our protection from this will be. Um, I think that that's gonna evolve. You know, it's so funny because, you know, you're asking me to say, what's gonna look like this is, let's call it the first of March. So what's it gonna look like in six months? Think about it, what did it look like six months ago? That was like August. And we were in a completely different place. <clears throat> and we're definitely in a completely different place having the vaccines that we have, knowing a little bit more of what we know, uh, being threatened by the variants that are out there. It's just, it's, it's hard to, to know for sure. Um, but one of the things that I've been so you know, proud of, uh, President Miana, uh, Provost TV, of that when, when they made decisions about how we were gonna move forward, it was always about student safety first. It was not about, let's make sure we get enough students to register so that we can you know, do whatever. Um, we, we live on, we're a public institution. Um, we are reliant upon student tuition. And so we need students to be here and be engaged. Yes, we wanna share their knowledge, we wanna educate them, we wanna graduate them. And also we're dependent upon them to actually move forward as a university. Um, but those decisions were all made based on student health and student safety first. And that's what we'll stay with. And so we'll look and see what it looks like. Um, you know, I have, I have charged our provost with thinking, hey, let's imagine what it looks like if we don't have masks, if we don't have all of those things. And let's think about some of, like you said, when, when March hit, we had basically most places had a week to turn around. That's, I know at my institution, we had one week. And thank goodness we have smart, dedicated faculty who put forth the effort to be able to make that change. That's a really big change. Please appreciate your, your, your faculty because of that. Because it's, it's like riding a bike and then all of a sudden someone's saying, oh, you need to ride that backwards. What? I mean, it's still teaching, but it's teaching in a completely different way than most people have done. So we will, we will follow what the most safe practices are. It will always be guided by that. I, I hate it sometimes because I know it's unpopular. Um, and I would just rather be unpopular, but have you be safe. That's, that's, that has to be the number one thing. And then the number two thing is making sure that you get a world-class education. So we'll fill it in behind with all of that. So that's the decision making. I think back to your other question, which is about the Asian students. That, that bothers me so much. Um, and I, I have heard those things before being said before. Um, you know, one time I got into a verbal discussion with someone who was saying those things. And another, I think the first time I was so stunned that people could, I guess it's, it's that we all have to understand that people have biases and people have different ways that they think about things. And so in higher ed, what our goal always is, is then to educate. And so even when I was conversing very heatedly with this other person, I was trying to educate them to say, you know, 
How can you think this when there's this? How can you think that when there's this? And really kind of playing upon, you know, the idea of any one individual being responsible. That's not what's at play here. This, this, is, this is a health crisis. Um, and I'm not gonna editorialize too much about this. What I would say is, is that um, we will be making sure that we have an avenue to hear students and, and faculty and staff. Um, and if those things arise, we're gonna talk about them and we're gonna say that they're not acceptable. Um, there are things I am sure through the student code of conduct we can do to try to, to basically enforce that there's got to be a level of civility. There's got to be a level of that we treat each other like community members and that, um, you know, some of that, that kind of, of, of hatred and language is, is not appropriate for UNLV. It's not who we are. Um, and I, I really want to believe, you know, it's funny. If you think of all the interactions that people have and that then you see that that one and maybe it's out of a thousand but it's still too many but it's still that i don't think that that's the majority of what it represents on our campus but we don't want to have it at all and we want to make sure that those people that are doing that understand that that you know you're you're on the minority you're not in the majority that's not how people think that's not how we conduct ourselves that's not how we interact with one another so um, I, I have now heard this now. We had a great session yesterday on um, racism during a pandemic. And I want to say his name is Mark. Um, yes, thank you. I, I kept seeing his name on the bottom of the line and I was like, I can't say it right or I'm so embarrassed. He rubs off a lot on me. So I'm like the mini version of him. And hearing some of the things that he experienced where it's, it, it put me on notice to say that, yeah, we can't take it for granted that we won't hear those kinds of things even on a college campus. As much as you think people are educated and enlightened, sometimes they, they have these biases that we do need to address and we need to have discussions about. Well, thank you so much for addressing that. Um, it Personally, for me, I feel like you actually give a lot to your to the students here on campus especially for Appymain international students as well um and so a light-hearted question i swear um have you picked up any new hobbies since quarantine has started besides being UNLV president <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think that's a really big hobby so did you say do i have any hobbies yeah hobbies since you picked up quarantine i was gonna say being the president is not a hobby that is for <laughs> no 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 it, it may be more appropriate as it's a full contact sport is what it is. <laughs> but um, I don't know if you've seen, there's this one picture, it was one of the first pictures that was taken and it was with one of my cars. Mm -hmm. And it's a 1966 El Camino. Um, actually, I, I felt like it was one of the biggest compliments that I ever got. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what is Jose's last name? Uh, it's not Mendez, it's, it's Melendez or something like that, that is a faculty member in our School of Public Health. And somebody asked him about me and they said, you know, well, so what's he like? And I said, well, all you got to do is look and see his car is a low rider because it, it's on air shocks and it sits real low. And so, you know, I got props from my Hispanic brothers because of my my lowered car. But that's that's my kind of thing. I love cars. I I watch all the car shows. And so that's my fun thing. And 
Um, it's been a little cold, but once it starts to get warmer, um, you will likely see me driving around at some point in time mm -hmm. with one of my cars. I have I have a few of them. Not not a lot, but I have a few. All right, so, so we're going to listen to like the George Lopez theme song after driving up, right? There you go. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> well, you should also look and see, some because some people, that's how they found out about me, is that when I was at my last institution, um, I had an old truck that happened to be the colors of the school. And so we kind of, it got adopted as kind of the warrior wagon. We were the Wayne State Warriors, and it was the warrior wagon. And there is a thing called cruising with the provost. Mm -hmm. And with the deans, I wanted to really personalize and let them brag about their, their colleges. And so we hopped in my truck and we drove around by their colleges and, you know, did a, like a, a carpool karaoke kind of thing with them. So, um, so I won't say I'm going, I have something planned already, but, you know, I'm a rebel now. So... We, we will see. Uh, it's a great excuse for me to get another car that I will paint red and silver, scarlet and silver. And uh, we'll, we'll see what kinds of fun things we can do with that. Awesome. I absolutely love it. Uh, thank you so much for answering the questions. I'm now going to pass it over to the MOCA president, Josue, and he will be asking you some questions. Okay, so these, these questions aren't, aren't too crazy. A little, maybe a little bit, but we overall time, Yeah, <laughs> we just want to keep you on your toes. Um, overall, if you could give a letter grade to UNLV, UNLV's attitude towards people of color, what would it be? Oof, that is a hard question. Um, so tell me more. See, I'm a professor, so I'm like, so what am I grading you on? What are the what are the objectives that I'm grading you on? The openness to new ideas and different types of cultures and viewpoints of other people. I'd give us a B minus. Okay. Um, I think that we have, uh, to a large extent, embraced that we are one of the most diverse campuses in the country. I think that people are holding that as a badge of, of, of honor, which it should be. Um, but I grade us down because we've got to take that demographic and put it into the classroom and into the learning situation more than what we do now. Um, I think that um, some of our research, I think, could inc improve, increase. Um, we've got um, uh, Melvin, Melva, Thompson Robinson. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I, I had a, a panel that I served on with her the last week, and I was just so amazed at the work that she's doing as a director for the Center for Health Disparities. And I just think that we need to be doing like 10,000 projects rather than maybe 50 projects. So that's why I would, I would you know, uh, downgrade us in terms of points and not have an A. Um, but um, I think that those things are coming. I think that those things are possible. Um, and I think that um, we're going to have these opportunities where, you know, we have an army of the willing, an army of students and of faculty, uh, and finding ways in which we actually improve our circumstances relative to diversity and inclusion and thinking about, you know, because part of it is teaching, part of it is <clears throat> learning, part of it is researching, part of it is scholarship. 
And then I think that all of that will come in and will will increase. It's it's not that everybody's going to do that, but that we need to have it be a very prominent piece of what you get when you get a UNLV education or when you step on this campus as a visitor and, and see that um, we have embraced all of that. Uh, I do think that it's possible. Okay, then yeah, definitely. I think to add to that then, do you feel that you have the support of your cabinet and the Board of Regents? And do you think that that differs because you're a black man? <laughs> uh, I think that's so fascinating because uh, one, I'm still new. So I've only tested the water a few times, but um, uh, our chancellor, I think is, is gonna be, is, is very, very good. I think that she has taken the NC system approach, I think in the right sort of way of that, you know, we're different schools. It's, it's like if you're a parent and you got kids, there's just different kids who do different things, but they're still part of a family. And I think that she treats us in that way that she allows us to be independent as well as being able to kind of highlight our strengths and see ways in which we can share them with the other institutions. Um, I think the Board of Regents, you know, we just turned over. We've got some uh, brand new, uh, very exciting, very engaged regents. And I think that they're going to continue to provide us with, with really good leadership um, and, and hopefully discussions. You know, one of the things that um, I won't say that it's, it's the situation we have here at UNLV, but that I've been at, at other universities is sometimes the relationship between the university and a board is that we want to just give you a bunch of information and we don't ask you what you think. And it's that the board and the university should have kind of like this didactic relationship where they talk about things. It's not just about doing some report where you check off a box. It is that there are a lot of hard discussions and and decisions that have to be made. And I'm hoping that uh, we can have more space for those kinds of conversations rather than just this very parochial kind of uh, presentations that we do. That's, that's, that's a point or an opportunity for growth in the future. I think that uh, I do get plenty of, of insight and, and information from our regions, and so um, that is helpful to me. Um, and so uh, have they treated me differently? I don't think so. Um, I, again, I was sharing with somebody uh, with a group yesterday that one of the things that um, made me feel comfortable, actually I was sharing with a group today, uh, was that when I interviewed, I thought it was very interesting. I mean, you know, you may not know this, but I'm a black guy, okay? <laughs> and I've been a black guy all my life. And I kinda, you know, and I'm a psychologist, I have psychology in my background. So I feel like, I, I think anybody does, you don't have to have a psychometric background. I interpret, and somebody's treating me a little differently, it's like, yeah, okay, they're treating you like you're the big black guy. You know, there's just a certain way that people will approach how they talk with you and ask questions and whatever. And when I was interviewing, um, I had really just kind of raised my interest in the position um, I had a very good job. I had a very hard job. I had a very good job. Um, but I got more and more interested because of the diversity, because of what was going on here at UNLV. And, but then I said, okay, but wait a minute. I'm a black guy. You know, eh, you know, we'll see. But they asked me questions that weren't ingrained in being a black guy. They asked me questions about leadership. They asked me questions about the future of higher ed. They asked me questions about 
how do you manage and how do you lead? And I felt that it basically had nothing to do with being a black guy. And I think in their selection, you know, I don't know everyone's mind. I don't know everyone's heart. But I can tell you, I sure did walk away from the regents, from uh, the students, from the faculty, from the foundation members, feeling like they were assessing the content of my character rather than the color of my skin. And all that did when I walked away, I was like, holy crap, I want this job. I, this is a place for, we fit. This is a good fit. These guys should pick me. Um, and so I don't think so. You know, it's going to be out there. There's, there's difference. You know, if you don't see that I'm a black guy, you know, either, either you've lost your sight or something's happened. And so, you know, but if people are open to having relationships and for donors and outside people, they've all been saying, you know, well, let's find out about this guy. And, you know, not treated me with disrespect, treated me actually with ultimate respect, with more respect than, um, you know, it's, it's my process in getting used to being a president, um, that certain people have this idea that you're, you should have some status there. I, I know you can't just treat me like an average person, but I'm a blue collar guy. I want to do the work that we need to work on. You know, anything that I ask anybody to do, I'm willing to do the same thing. Um, and I think that, uh, I think, you know, we have our problems with our society right now. We, we, we have our challenges. We do have inequities. We do have the ways in which people are being treated differently, but we're getting better. And you, you can't think that we're not getting better. If, if you see the response to George Floyd and you see that it wasn't just black people out, it wasn't just brown people out, it was people all over the world that responded to that. You gotta understand that's a positive. That had not happened before, not in, not in anything that was in, in any time of recent years. We're talking about going back to the 60s. And so at UNLV, I think we're paying even more attention to it. You know, Las Vegas is a different sort of place. It's a, it's a young place in some ways, but it's, it's open to things. And as a university that's in this community, we can help to change that. I think that that's what I believe. I believe that each one of you all as students actually are our little proselytes to go out there and say, we can make a fair and equitable and exciting and, and welcoming and diverse community. And I can show you how, because I've learned it and I've experienced it at UNLV. And that that's what my plan is, is for all of you all to be our best representatives to be able to create that kind of society. And we, we do want to be respectful to your time, so we're going to have to conclude right now. But we want to ask one last question. What's something that you want to say to every student, everybody that's listening? What's something that you really want to show as a message to them? You know, you keep asking me all these questions, and I, I keep thinking I've said everything. And uh, I, I know that uh, we've run out of time, and even my assistant is trying to, to, to move me on to the next meeting that I have. But for students, I typically break the time rule. Everybody else gets kicked out. But for students, you know, you guys always get a little extra time. So you got a little extra time. Um, so in that extra time, what would I want to say to all students? Um, there's a couple of things that I'd say. One of them would be is that um, for different people, for different degrees, this is a hard time. This is a time where people feel isolated. This is a time where people feel challenged. 
uh, both kind of emotionally and economically. Um, and what I, I really want them to do is to figure out some way to find hope. You can find hope in lots of different things. Sometimes it's that you have a pet. I don't have my dog yet. I got to get a dog. I'm a dog guy. You know, it can, it can be in your pet. Um, it can be in the family members that you get to connect with. It can be with a, a faculty member or a fellow student. Um, it can be making sure that you, you um, get some good food. But finding things to, to be hopeful so that we can make it through this period of time, um, because it will make us stronger. Um, I also want people to be able to appreciate others. Um, I think that we were in a world where we might have been taking some things for granted. Um, we have these phones where we think that, you know, we're doing things on social media and we think we're really connecting with people. We're finding out we're not really connecting with people just through social media. It takes a whole lot more than that. And that for those people that we can connect with, we need to appreciate them every day because none of us is promised a day. I think that the scourge that this has had on our population, um, it has affected older people more than younger people, but it has killed many younger people. And so whether it's your friend or whether it's your parents or whether it's your grandparents or whether it's your uncles, whether it's, it's an older relative or just an older friend, um, lots of people have been impacted by this. And I think that we have to kind of take the lesson from it of that. That means that we have to appreciate each other. That means that we can't take each other for granted. That means we have to say, hey, you know, I really appreciate you today or, or I'm thankful that you're in my life or, you know, Hey, you know, Grandpa, I love you. Um, making sure that we do those things. I think there were there were times when our lives were moving so quickly before COVID that I think we so, might have taken some of that for granted. And I really hope that each one of us actually takes a moment to be able to do that. Um, and then maybe the last thing I would say is that I go back to the hopeful piece of it. I want you to stay hopeful about your education. This is a moment of time that is fraught with difficulties, you know, like I said, economically and emotionally. But you're going to make it through this. I want you to stay healthy and to be able to make it through it. And so then when you do, you're going to get this degree that will be able to change your life, the life of your family, the life of people around you. And even though it's virtual, it's still that you're learning. And I want you to, and I would just want people to be able to try to stay on the path. I know it's hard. There's many more. There's more and difficult, more opt obstacles now. But I really, I, I, every student, you know, we look and look at our retention, you know, from semester to semester. And I, you know, we have some fantastic people in our admissions and 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 in our student affairs offices. And I feel sorry for them sometimes because I harass them. I want to know where every single student is. What happened to that student? Is there anything we can do to make it so that they can come back? Because I want to keep them in, because if they stay in, that means they get closer to graduation. And I want every single person who starts here to be able to get on the other side and get out of here. And so in this time when we've got all of these challenges, I want people to stay hopeful. I want them to make sure that they reach out to their university. This is you all's university. This is our university. And we are here and we are a community. And when you ask for help, 
If you can't figure out who to get help from, ask somebody else, because somebody else at this university will be looking to help so that people can stay on the path and get that degree. So those, I, those are my thoughts I think I would share. Thank you so much. That was amazing. And this is the voice from behind the scenes. Man, I'm James Wright, and we really appreciate you, everyone here from the Men of Color Alliance, from the Women of Color Coalition, and all the students that are on campus. We really appreciate you for coming here and pretty much talking directly to the students. No middleman, asking, answering questions right between the students and the faculty. It's really been a pleasure, and I thank you for so much for dedicating your time to us, especially how much, how busy you are. So about two hours to students is really amazing, and it means a lot. <laughs> more compared to the previous administrations that have been here at UNLV and how constant it's been flipping. And so once again, we thank you. And with that, thank you for listening in everyone. I'm James Wright. Thank you all. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you for coming. Um, I'm Jose Rosales. I'm Abraham Lugo. I'm Darian Sluker. And I'm Ava Carino. Thank you for your leadership too. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Take care.